my partner today is John Payne. Many of you are familiar with John. Some of you are not. Uh, John is the Forest Lakes District Superintendent. He happens to be a member here at Highland. He's a lousy member. Just going to tell you. He thinks he has to visit 139 other churches. So he's not a very good attender, even though he's a member. But uh, my brother, my friend John and I are going to preach today out of Exodus 20, 13. And uh, it's a very familiar text. Now, you may ask, why not Exodus 20, 12? If you've been following along, I preached four sermons, the first four commandments. I skipped the fifth and I went to the sixth. Uh, there's some reasoning behind that. Uh, I noticed in the last 18 months, I preached, Thou shalt honor thy father and mother twice, once on graduation Sunday and once on Mother's Day. And then much to my utter dismay, I realized I preached that text five times in 20 years here. There is no passage I have preached 20 or five times in 20 years. In fact, almost none have I preached twice. So I skipped it. This, by the way, is John. Welcome, brother. Now, why don't you go ahead and... They didn't clap for me. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Thank I you. I don't either. <laughs> go ahead and pray, my friend. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this day. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you, God, for your word. I pray this morning as your word is open that you'd give us eyes to see, minds that would be open, hearts that would be receptive, and hands and feet and a mouth that would be obedient. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would have freedom to work in this room and to minister to each one of us where we need to hear from you today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today is probably one of the darker of the Ten Commandments. It's also the most nuanced of the Ten Commandments. It says in the King James, thou shalt not kill. That's how I learned it as a child. As a child, I learned the Ten Commandments. I learned them out of the 1611 King James, thou shalt not kill. And in 1611, that was a perfect translation. The problem becomes that the word kill is now much wider. It has a wider semantic range in 2021 than it had in 1611. The Hebrew is lo, which is the word no, ratzah, no murder. If the Hebrew had just wanted to forbid all forms of killing, it would have said lo hatzag, it would have said lo yamutz, but it said lo ratzah. So it's not forbidding all types of killing, it's forbidding a type of killing that the Bible calls murder. I want to illustrate this out of some things I've read in the media. A number of years ago, the Chicago Tribune 
had a Hebrew scholar, Rabbi Mark Gelman, and people could write in questions out of the Old Testament, and he would answer them, and he was a brilliant scholar. One of them read something like this. I graduated from high school in 1962. I immediately joined the army. In 1965, I found myself in Vietnam. Several times when we would go through the forests and the woods, we came across enemy combatants. I personally killed several enemy combatants. The Bible says, thou shalt not kill. I have killed. Will I go to hell? I've asked my clergy person the answer. He has not responded. Now, if we had answered that question, we would say something like this. There is no sin committed by anyone in this room. And let's be honest. Some of you are rather big sinners. But there is no sin committed by anyone in this room that Jesus cannot cover. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty of sin, which is death. He died on the cross, was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, that if by faith we would believe in Christ, if we would agree with Christ that we are sinners, confess, and the power of God's Spirit, we begin to turn from our sin, repent, we would be saved. So even if one commits murder, and I don't think what he referred to, that soldier, is murder. But even if we had committed murder, if we confess, and we do believe in Jesus as Savior, he covers that sin and gives us eternal life. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. I think of another thing. It was written by Sean. It was written by, to the Texas Rabbinical Post. And he asked this question. He said, I've been reading scripture and I think there's a contradiction. No, I don't. But he says, I've been reading scripture. I think there's a contradiction. The sixth command says, thou shalt not kill. And yet I read in scripture that there are certain crimes that will allow capital punishment. Why does the sixth commandment not overrule the capital punishment found in the Bible. Now we're going to answer those questions today and a number of others. They're great questions. I want to start with that first one. The man who's essentially asking, did he murder by killing an enemy combatant? Is there such a thing as a just war? Or because he killed, will he go to hell. Now we know because of grace and because of faith in Christ, he won't. But I think it's still a good question. In fact, I'm going to expand it. What would happen if we have some first responders in this room, some police officers who in the course of their job defend innocent life and in doing so they take the life of a perpetrator? Is that murder? Is the soldier who defends innocent life, is she or he a murderer? Let me make it more personal. 
What if somebody breaks into your home and they are going to take the life of someone in your home and you have the ability to stop it, but the only way to stop it is to take the perpetrator's life. Is that murder? Well, the first thing we need to know is that the Bible has a wide variety of words for killing. The one in the sixth commandment, ratsa, low is no, ratsa, murder, is never once used of defending innocent life. It's never once used of the military who defends innocent life. It's never once used of someone who stops an individual who has on their intent to perpetrate evil against an innocent. So this commandment doesn't apply to any of them. In fact, although the Bible settled it all the way back in Genesis 9, and we'll see that, the church itself didn't really settle this, qual this qual quality of questions until the 5th century AD. It was under Augustine, who died in 430, who gave us the rules for a just war, a just defense. But he took them out of scripture. He used two Latin phrases, Jew ad bellum and Jew in bellal. You might be surprised that in 1945, the United Nations cited Augustine, which cited the Bible, to give us what is a just defense of human life. What do these Latin phrases mean? They mean the motives have to be just. We're defending innocent life. And the methods used have to be measured. We don't go beyond what we have to do. The motives have to be just. The methods have to be measured. But if the motives are just, if the methods are measured, and we're defending innocent life, we have biblical grounds to do so. How did Augustine arrive at that? The sixth commandment. Loratza is never used when someone defends innocent life. In fact, in scripture, we see on multiple occasions, God sending his people out to defend innocent life against those who would try and take it. So though Ratsa does not forbid our first responders, our soldiers, or even defending innocent life within one's home. Loratza also does not forbid capital punishment. That's what Sean was getting at when he thought incorrectly. He saw a contradiction. He said, you shall not kill, but kill really means murder, the sixth commandment. And then he saw capital punishment. Do you know that there are 38 passages of capital punishment in the Bible? It's not a one-time event, but it always is measured, it always is with right motive, it always is to defend life. If the Bible were to say you cannot kill, it would have used harag, it would have used yamut, it used ratsa. 
The command doesn't say we can't kill under certain circumstances. It says we cannot murder under any circumstances. Now when you come to capital offenses in the Bible, most of them are rather extreme. The two that are found most often are capital offenses are allowed if someone murders another or someone rapes another. But herein comes the nuance. There are many occasions in the Bible where those conditions are met and yet God shows grace. So just because something can be responded to by capital punishment doesn't mean it has to be. Think of David. David is king and he commits murder, does he not? He murders Uriah the Hittite. The way I understand the text of Bathsheba, I think he also commits rape. I think he powered over a commoner and Bathsheba had no choice in the matter. I think David could have faced capital punishment on more than one occasion or one crime. And yet God gave grace. Now think of how capital punishment is often addressed in our country. It's often addressed this way. Those who think capital punishment is acceptable have a low view of life. The Bible is just the opposite. The Bible actually allows capital punishment with a just government because God has a high view of life. Every person in this room has been stamped with the Imago Dei, the image of God. It's been marred by our sin. But we are image bearers of the Almighty. And because God has such a high value for life, and nobody has more of the image of God, and nobody has less of the image of God. We all have equal image of God stamped on us, and because that elevates who we are in God's sight, God allows capital punishment, doesn't mandate it, but allows capital punishment for certain crimes as a deterrent, lest somebody else murder or rape another person stamped with his image. Let me read this to us out of Scripture. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. That's why God allows it. It's not a low view. It's an exceptionally high view of every person on earth. Let me read out of the New Testament, Romans 13, 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, the government, does not bear the sword, capital punishment in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So capital punishment is allowed, it's not mandated, for certain vile crimes against people stamped with the image of God. If the motives are right, 
and the methods are measured. In the providence of God, the very day I wrote this sermon, the United States Army pulled out of Kabul. And on that day, the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. And it's not all of the Taliban, but it was some. And I'm not an eyewitness. I can just read like you. But they committed some atrocities. Retribution. Women who dared to get educated were raped and murdered. Individuals who dared in the last 20 years to help our country were slaughtered. People, Afghanistan has 67 tribes. People of the wrong tribes were annihilated because they were of the wrong tribe. That's not just. That's not measured. That is murder. That is what the command forget, forbids. Lo Ratsa. God is elevating human life. He's not devaluing it. Now I've been dark so far. I'm going to get about a little bit darker. I'm sorry. But Lo Ratsa also refers to suicide. And I know the moment I mention suicide... For some of us, that's very painful. Some of us have had loved ones who have taken their lives. They've been in a very dark and difficult spot. And in a moment of insanity, they have taken their lives. And we're left behind to ask ourselves a thousand questions. Why didn't I see it? What should I have done? What could I have done? Questions we cannot answer. Questions we're not responsible for, but, but we feel that way. And it's a very heavy topic. Some of us have grown up in traditions in which uh, we were told that if someone committed suicide, it was a mortal sin. You'll be happy to know that the tradition that taught that actually backed away from that teaching in 1992, although it didn't always filter down to all of the clergy who taught it. That's not the position I hold. I look at Romans 8.1. It says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I believe it is possible. In fact, I believe I've known a couple who, in a moment of agony and despair did what they would not do in a sane moment and they've taken their life and I fully expect to see them in heaven. I don't believe that there is any sin that is beyond the healing presence of Christ in our lives. What did you and I do to gain salvation? Nothing. So why do we think we can, in one act, lose our salvation? So is it possible that someone could commit suicide and go to heaven? Of course. Now I know what I just did. For some of you who have lost a loved one or a friend, I've given you hope and joy. But some of you may say, oh my... Did he just give permission to somebody who is in a very deep, dark spot to say, why not end it all? I know Jesus, I'm going to heaven. 
No, I did not give you that permission. Know this. You are stamped with the image of God. Can you imagine standing before the Lord? Standing before Jesus who died on your behalf and rose again. Can you imagine standing before God who was in your mother's womb? Psalm 139, 13 to 16. Who knit you together and say, Lord, I took the life you gave me. I don't think that solves any problems. First, it denies that God is able. He's able to bring us out of difficulty. Second, it denies how valuable we are to the Lord. We are made in his image. Third, I think we face an angry God who doesn't remove salvation, but might remove some eternal rewards that by God's grace, through service, we have earned up. We don't want that scenario. If you're in a dark place, my heart goes out to you. Please call the Suicide Prevention Center. Please go visit your PA or your MD and ask them for help. Go to an older, that would be me or a few other pastors, and get help. Go to a Christ-centered Christian counselor. You're not in this alone. And there are better days ahead. And you are stamped with God's image. And suicide is murder. Don't go down that path. Get help. You're loved too much. And you don't want to leave loved ones behind who will ask a thousand questions that cannot be answered. You think too highly of your loved ones. Don't ever go down that path. So Ratza covers self-murder. It also covers children at every stage, in the womb, outside of the womb. Let me interact with a few passages in Scripture. I think these are remarkable. I hope you'll find them remarkable as well. Genesis 5, 3 and 4. And Adam lived 130 years and begot, it's the Hebrew word, yelled. And he yelled a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. And he begot, he yelled Seth. The days of Adam were 800 and he had sons and daughters. I think we all can conclude from the text that word yelled, begat, means the moment of conception. Because let's be honest, the woman does nine months of work, the man does like very little. He's part of the conception process, right? So we're talking about the moment of conception. That's what the word yelled means. Genesis 25, 22. But the children, Hebrew yelled, struggled together within her womb. Now we have Rebecca, she's having twins. She doesn't have to wait until the kids are in the back seat fighting. They're in her womb fighting. She's in the third trimester. So the moment of conception is called yelled. The third trimester is called yelled. 1 Kings 3, 26. Oh my Lord, give her the living child. Yelled. And by no means kill him. You know the account we have two prostitutes. They have two young sons. One dies in the night. 
They both claim the living son as their own. There are no eyewitnesses. There is no DNA. They come to Solomon and Solomon thinks, how am I going to solve that? He takes out a sword and he pretends. He's not going to do it. He pretends to, that he'll cut the baby in two and give one half to each, knowing full well the real mother will say, by no means, give my son to the other woman. And in that way, he figures out who is the real mother. So these children that are out of the womb are also called yelled. So the moment of conception is yelled. The third trimester is yelled. The child outside the womb is yelled. Science struggles between first, second, and third trimester. Philosophy struggles between first, second, and third trimester. The Hebrew Bible does not. But we'll go to the New Testament, the Greek language. Now we have brephos. And in Acts chapter 719, looking back at an Old Testament text, children under the age of two that Pharaoh wants to kill are all called brephos. You go to 1 Peter 2, verse 2, and you have a child just outside the womb, just delivered, and the child is called Brephos. You go to Luke 1, 44, and here you have Elizabeth. She's carrying John the Baptist. Mary is carrying Jesus, and Mary comes in proximity to Elizabeth, and she said that the Brephos in my womb leapt for joy. So the Bible in the New Testament has a two-year-old called Berphos. It has a just-delivered child called Berphos. And it has a child in the womb called Berphos. The Bible does not struggle between first, second, and third trimester. The Bible says it's all life. Value life. Now, some of us, and after John's done, it will be all of us, have been guilty of some form of murder. Wait till John's done. You'll know you're guilty. So am I. We can live in despair. We can fall upon the grace of God. And some of you who have been involved in murder... You've fallen on the grace of God and you've asked him oh, a thousand times, forgive me. But you haven't accepted that he forgives. We need to ask and believe that he extends grace and walk in freedom. We all need grace. Our sins are different. We all need grace. Today we agree with God, confess, in the power of God's spirit, we repent. And then we walk and bask in his grace. This teaching on the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, and the way Pastor Jeff has just applied it has great significance to today. Justifiable war by government seeking to do righteous acts. Self-defense and what that means. <laughs> Capital punishment. Suicide. And then abortion. 
and euthanasia. When God spoke these words to Moses, he was declaring the fact that all human life is valuable. And I'd like to give you three reasons why every single life is so valuable. The first reason Pastor Jeff's already touched on is that God created humanity in his image. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. In our whole being, we reflect the glory of God. After God looked at the various aspects of his creation, he had one word to describe everything that he had made and spoke into existence. He said that his creation was good. But after God took the dust to the ground and created humanity, he looked at that creation, he looked at us, and he said, this creation is very good. I nailed it. (laughs) This is very good. And the reason why the creation of us as human beings was so good is because we are the image bearers of God. Now, we fell, and human life is still valuable because of our being created in God's image. A second reason I believe that every human life is valuable is because human life possesses dignity and value. Now look here, I I want you all to hear this. (laughs) Every single person in this room has tremendous value and worth. You matter to God. Every person here in this room, you have value, you have worth. The psalmist said in Psalm 8, 3 through 6, when I look at your heavens, (laughs) the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what in the world is man that you are mindful of him, of us as humans, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and the angels and crowned him with glory and honor You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. When I think about the greatness of our God and how amazing he is, and yet I think that he knows the very hair that is on our head. He has them numbered. Oh, my word. Why would God on this earth of seven billion of us human beings running around, and yet he would say, I care for each and every individual. You matter. You have value. You have tremendous worth. And the third reason I believe gives significance to that and shows why you have value and worth is the third reason that God has shown that is human life is valuable because of the great price of redemption. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. When I look at you and I say, you are valuable, you matter, you are loved, 
The reason I can have confidence to look at you and say that is because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you. God loves you so much for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Because of the precious blood of Jesus, you have value. Think of that infinite worth, the value of the blood of the son of God who came and gave his life as a ransom for you. You have tremendous value, tremendous worth. Well, as Pastor Jeff said, I'm going to throw us all under the bus. So go to Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus expanded this teaching of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. He's on the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching a group of uh, Jewish followers who've come to hear him. And he says this in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said, you, you have heard that it was said of those of old. Now, this is not a reference to the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. What Jesus is referring to here is the teachers of the law of that day went back to human tradition, and because of that, most of the Jewish people of that day had been separated from the scriptures because after the exile, many of them had lost the ability to be able to converse in Hebrew and to understand Hebrew, so they took what was said to them by the religious teachers of the day, because of their high regard for them, they took it at face value. Since they didn't understand the exposition, explanation given to them, their respect for these religious leaders was to accept whatever they were told. Unfortunately, many of the scribes and rabbis no longer translated and explained the scripture themselves. Instead, they taught from the traditions of men that had replaced the word of God. So Jesus, when he said, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder or whoever murders will be liable of judgment. Jesus was saying they started out well about the sixth commandment given in Exodus 20. However, instead of explaining what Moses meant, they reduced it to whoever commits murder shall be liable of judgment. Well, that's the same thing today. If there's someone that commits a murder and there's evidence of it, that evidence is brought forward, there's a, a courtroom with a judge and a jury and a process with, with legal evidence that's brought forward. So the second statement, they shall be liable, is true. But it, what Jesus is saying, it reduces what God says about murder to, to mere punishment at the hands of civil courts. And God's teaching about murder goes way beyond human government and predates Moses. So Jesus looks at them and says this, <laughs> you say that if you commit murder, that whoever commits murder will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. We're under the bus. Whoa, just three all under the bus. Can you imagine the response of this crowd when Jesus is talking about murder and the commandment, and then all of a sudden he looks at all of them and says, oh, and by the way, if you're guilty of hatred of others, you also are liable of judgment. Murder is not just a physical act, it's a matter of the heart. And one of the most common justifications people use to claim that they are good and not really as bad as others is we say, well, I've never murdered anyone. 
And yet, who here has been angry with another person? (laughs) Who here has sat behind a car at a stoplight? Now he's meddling. (laughs) I've ridden with Pastor Jeff. No, just (laughs) He's a good driver. But when the light turns from red to green, and all of a sudden from behind comes a horn being honked, (laughs) or anger, especially what our society is finding itself today with people who have lashed out at others on social media, and because there's no accountability of what they say, they think they can say anything to anybody's face without any repercussions. The hatred, the anger, the vitriol. And Jesus looked at this crowd and he says to us, if you're guilty of anger towards someone else, you too are liable. Let me give you quickly as I close here, maybe something to do when you feel that anger welling up in you against someone else. Look at others through the lenses of the person of Jesus Christ to know that he looks at people and says they are valuable to him. They were created in God's image and treasured by God because of the great sacrifice of his son Jesus who died on the cross for that individual. And remember this. God has extended grace and mercy to you. Would you not, if you've come to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, say that you are a recipient of mercy and grace? Then why do we not in turn extend mercy and grace to others? We to follow the example of Christ and extend mercy and grace to others. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Um, the teaching, this goes way back in terms of the setting up of society, these commandments that were given. And Lord, the application of that, I know that in a room this size, people are affected by what they've heard this morning. God, I pray for those who are hurting. I thank you that you've said we can cast all of our care upon you because you care for us. Lord, may you go up and down the rows here by your spirit and minister to the needs, the hearts, the hurts of each person in this room. And thank you, God, that you have the power to step into our circumstance and bring hope, to bring truth, and not just bring abundant life, but eternal life. And so, God, minister to each need this morning. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.